welcome. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to Medically Speaking. I'm happy that you could join us tonight. We are um, kicking off our Heart Month. Well, we kicked it off last uh, week with uh, Sandy McElizzi, and we had a very spirited talk about AFib, a lot of callers. Um, and we're going to continue our conversation tonight. We're going to talk about uh, women in heart disease. And we, as I told you early on, are going to start inviting physicians that are part of our um, Trinity Health of New England region. So tonight we have with us from St. Saint Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Dr. Anita Kelsey, who is a cardiologist at St. Francis. Welcome, Dr. Kelsey. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you tonight, Robin? I'm really good. Thank you so much for joining us. I met with you last week, and I know you and I had a great conversation, and you're an incredibly busy woman, so I appreciate you taking the time to join us. My pleasure. So I'm going to just read the uh, audience your bio a little bit. So just indulge me. (laughs) Just indulge me. I know, but I want to let them know. I mean, we're just, we're so honored that we have so many incredible physicians within our resources now as part of Trinity Health of New England and our sister hospitals. And you're an incredible complement to what we already have here for our heart programs and loving the opportunity to share best practices with everyone. So this is a great growing network of physicians. So Dr. Kelsey, is um, a cardiologist and she's the director of echocardiography. She's medical director of the the Hoffman Heart School of Cardiac Ultrasound and director of the Phillips Women's Heart Program at St. Francis Hospital Medical Center. She completed her cardiology fellowship at Duke University. Very impressive. She is currently an associate uh, professor of medicine at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and also president of the American Heart Association, North Central Connecticut Board of Directors. You and you joined the Hoffman Heart Center and Vascular Institute at St. Francis in 2003. Is that correct? That's correct. And you've also got some special interest in echocardiography and real-time three-dimensional echocardiography. So we're going to talk a bit about that. Talk a little bit about testing tonight. So again, welcome, welcome. I'm so happy you can join us. And we wanted to focus our conversation tonight a bit about uh, women's heart disease, but I'm sure that we do have a lot of men listeners. So I know I welcome our calls at 203-757-1320. So you know, if we have men out there, you definitely have women in your life and it is Valentine's Day, so the affection of the heart. So men and women hopefully are listening to our program tonight. If you have questions in between eating your dark chocolate and potentially a little glass of red wine <laughs> with wouldn't hurt us, um, you're very welcome to call in. So again, Dr. Kelsey, welcome, welcome. So thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to talk a bit about the, the Hoffman Heart Center and Vascular Institute, because I don't know how many people in our um, our community of Greater Waterbury have heard about this, but, you know, we have this out on podcast, too. So, you know, this will be spread out through the region. So I would love for, for everyone to understand what it is. So uh, I, when I joined St. Francis in 2003, I already knew that there was some differences in heart disease between men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted very much to make part of my focus as a cardiologist here at St. Francis on women and heart disease because for many, many years we've really thought of heart disease as a man's disease. So men do get heart disease about 10 years earlier than women, but when women get heart disease it's quite serious. Uh, More women will die of cardiovascular disease than any other uh, cause of death 
worldwide. Um, and uh, around the age of 65, women's risk for cardiovascular disease goes up even higher. Young women can get heart disease and die early from cardiovascular disease. And in fact, if if a woman is under the age of 55 and has a heart attack in the United States, her chance of surviving to leave the hospital is only half of that of a man. And so I wanted very much to focus on some of these things in, in my career. And we were lucky enough to apply for and get funded for a primary prevention program. Mm-hmm. Because what we've learned is that uh, women uh, get the best benefit for reduction in heart attacks and strokes, which is what cardiovascular disease is, by doing things to prevent them, like finding out what their risk factors are and reducing them, because we know a lot of the risk factors for heart disease. We've learned them over many years, Mm. uh, taking care of both men and women. Things like uh, stopping smoking and getting to a healthy body weight and finding out if they have diabetes or high blood pressure, learning their cholesterols and staying active. And these things are very, very important. So what our program does is uh, we have uh, a team. And let me tell you about my team. So we have Claire Karwaki-Marug, who is an exercise physiologist. We have Victoria Murnau, who is a registered dietitian. We have Denise Highland, who is a registered nurse, and Beverly Vassell. And together with me, we uh, have women come to the hospital, learn about heart disease in women and how it's a little different, and then learn what their risk factors are as well as getting maybe blood tests for their cholesterols and diabetes if they haven't had them, uh, learn their weight, their body mass index, and we can talk more about these things tonight, Um, but also learn the ways to reduce their individual risk because no matter what your risk is, we know one very important thing, that greater than 80% of heart attacks can be prevented by modifying your risk factor. So we have people come here and we teach them here and then as a team we pack up and go. So anywhere that women gather we we are happy to come. So we will get our whole team together and we got our bag of goodies including blood pressure cuffs and waist measures and, <laughs> and we go out to your churches or your uh, book clubs or your anywhere there's groups of women who want to learn how to prevent heart disease. It's my personal dream, Robin, that about 10 years from now, they're going to look at maps of the United States and they're going to say, Connecticut, why are less women dying of heart disease in Connecticut? And I want to be a part of that. That's awesome. I, I, I should definitely introduce you to Sandy McElizzi, our APRN, who helps us in our heart center here in Greater Waterbury. When we got the heart center, Sandy was our APRN roadshow, and she continues to be for St. Mary's and Waterbury Hospital. And she goes out and she goes into the churches and she goes into the um, all the different clubs and, you know, spreading the word and really looking at those risk factors. And I think you're right. I think it's bringing it down at those grassroots levels, getting getting to where the women are to educate them because they don't always come to a program. Well, we will join her when she goes out and she can join us. Oh, absolutely. That's what collaboration is about. And we're getting you hooked up in our spirit of women. So you're going to have a lot of that. And there'll be a lot of networking with Sandy opportunities for sure. I'm looking forward to it. That'll be awesome. Let me ask you a question. You know, you you mentioned that 80% of the heart attacks can be prevented. When you look at these different risk factors, you make women more aware of the risk factors. What are some of the risk factors 
that you can say that are difficult to change? I mean, it definitely the fact of being a woman and heredity, are those, those are tough ones you can't change. Oh, so it turns out, actually, that we believe that even if you have a family history of premature coronary disease, and we define that as uh, having a first-degree relative who died or had their first cardiac event 10 years earlier than for their um, gender. So like your dad had a heart attack below 40 or your mom had a heart attack below uh, 55. Mm. And if you carry that risk and you're very aggressive in reducing your other risk factors, eating a heart-healthy diet, exercising regularly, doing all those things, you might be able to turn some of those genes off. We think you can even overcome some genetic risk if you're aggressive in your risk reduction behaviors. Which is very different from breast cancer risk when it's heredity. Uh, it is it is very different, but there are still things you can do Absolutely. even if you have breast cancer family history. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. there there are still other things that increase your risk. Mm. So for instance, if you if you have a family history and you're smoking, well you can no matter what your risk number is, you can bring it down. So you stop smoking and your risk goes down. And your risk goes down. And these are these are things that you definitely bring out to the public, and you uh, in, you educate them on these. Yes. So, when you're talking, when you're out there talking with women, is there ever a time where you identify somebody out there that you you needs to come in and see you? Uh, very often. Very often, right? We we find pe- people who have high blood pressure and never knew it. It's one of the things we, we call it the silent killer, right. because you know people think they're going to have a bad headache or. a or or some other symptom every time their blood pressure is high. And in fact, a lot of people have no symptoms when they have high blood pressure, and if they're not checking it with any regularity, then they'll miss it. And that gets to the, the, one of our biggest focuses is to reach underserved women, women who aren't getting health care regularly. That's why we go out into the community, because it's harder for them to come in. And so a lot of those women haven't had their blood pressure checked and might find it to be very elevated. And the guidelines for treating blood pressure tell us anywhere over 140 over 90 you should be on medicines for your blood pressure and i remind women that even over 130 over 80 is elevated so you know we need to do the lifestyle things that reduce blood pressure in that circumstance things like staying very active getting down to a healthy body weight avoiding salt in your diet it's we've always heard too that women's symptoms are very different than men so sometimes they're ignored can you can can we go down that road a bit yes so let's talk about that that's very important so we we always i think it's funny that it's called typical angina um because it's typical is what men experience so nine out of ten times having a heart attack a man will experience a symptom of pressure in the middle of their chest that goes down their left arm, comes up to their jaw, comes on with exertion, relieved by rest. That's typical angina. But women having a heart attack, only 60% of the time have that symptom. Um, They'll have other symptoms almost half of the time, 40% of the time. And those other symptoms can range from ache in both of their arms, shortness of breath, a sense that their heart is racing, 
uh, different kinds of discomfort, sometimes just a generalized sense of anxiety that they can't explain. And these symptoms can be very atypical. If a woman presents to the emergency room with these symptoms, it might not be recognized as quickly as as it would with someone with their hand right over their chest, pointing to their heart. Right. You know, here it is. This is my heart attack. Take me in quickly. And we know that if we get someone to care quickly, we're more likely to keep the heart attack smaller, and we're more likely to save their life during the heart attack. And it's not just physicians and healthcare providers who misdiagnose. You know, women ignore symptoms, and we do that sometimes because we take care of everyone else. Right. So... uh, we take care of children and, and spouses, and we have jobs that keep us very busy, and we put ourselves last on a long list of things to do. And if we're experiencing a symptom, we might let it go longer before we seek care. Well, and when you talk about these different um, symptoms, the shortness of breath, sometimes weakness, cold sweats, all of those things, we're not thinking heart attack either as women. Because we're also thinking the classical symptoms. So it's about educating the women as to what those symptoms can be. Yeah, and and not to make people crazy. Mm. You know, if you have a symptom of a left shoulder ache that happens every time you reach up to the cabinet, well, maybe it's your shoulder that's bothering you. And I tell women if they have a symptom between their nose and their belly button that's new for them, they should see a doctor. And if it's a severe symptom or a significant symptom, if they see a physician or a healthcare provider and they do a good history, a good physical exam, and get an electrocardiogram, they'll be able to sort out most of the time if that's their heart. And uh, the only way to know is to get to a healthcare provider to sort it out. Then after you know that that symptom is or isn't your heart, you know what to do next time. Absolutely. Do you do you get um, patients referred to you by other physicians when they feel that a woman needs to be evaluated at the Hoffman Center? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, there are many great doctors out there who do absolutely. a good job taking care of women. Absolutely. And so it doesn't have to be a woman doctor. I always remind people I know some great <laughs> male doctors who can take great care of women. Absolutely. I mean, we have a whole team. We have a whole team here at St. Mary's. And I know Dr. Kelly would kill me if I said it only had to be a female cardiologist. <laughs> But it's so true. Definitely. But you know, it's about an awareness program. And I think that's why, you know, I think it's so important to bring it out there. It's really about awareness and getting the awareness out to women. But we're also educating them about the men in their life, too. Absolutely. And uh, all of these risk factors that I'm mentioning right now are all pertinent to men, too. If a man is smoking, it increases his risk of heart attack and stroke. If he's overweight or obese, it also increases his risk. So you talked a bit, so talking about weight, one, the two things that you mentioned early on in risk factor were weight and body mass. Maybe we talk a little bit about that and what you're looking at when we're talking about reducing our risk. Yeah, so um, body mass index is just a simple calculation, and it's just your weight in kilograms divided by your height squared. Now, for people who like math, no especially since you met me, Robin, <laughs> that I fare very well when you put my height in the denominator and yeah, square you, it. So. You cheat a little bit. You're tall. <laughs> so and you met nice me. You met me, so you know I'm on the other end of the spectrum. So being nice and tall, I distribute the same weight. So uh, my body mass index and everybody should be less than 25 when okay. you calculate that for yourself. Another way of looking at it is the waist-height ratio. So uh, people who carry weight in the middle of their 
body. We call it the apple-shaped people are at higher risk for mm. cardiovascular events than people who carry weight in other places, down in their hips or in their legs, uh, because the fat that's in the middle of your belly is more metabolically active, makes your body a little more resistant to insulin, uh, more likely to become a diabetic, m- more likely to have metabolic syndrome, and increase your risk for a heart attack. So even if your body mass index is under 25, it still matters what your weight waist height ratio is. So we just take a little measuring tape and we go around um, just a little bit above your belly button um, and you'll measure the waist and for a man it should be less than 40 inches, for a woman it should be less than 35 inches um, if you're just looking at the waist alone. And the waist height ratio, so again I fare a little better than some people because you're putting my height in the denominator, it should be less than 0.5. And so um, if you carry a lot of weight in the middle, even if your body mass index is under 25, you can reduce your risk further by losing a little weight. And the good news about that is even though it may be hard to lose weight, I know it is for me as I'm Mm -hmm. sure it is for everyone else. Absolutely. Um, if you lose about 10% of your body weight, you get a, a very significant decline in your risk for heart attack and stroke. So even that first 10% makes a big difference. And it's really, it's definitely really hard. I mean, I'm sure you see it a lot, you know, as a physician and all physicians see it. People struggle with that day in and day out. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you have to be regimented. You do. You have to um, pay attention to what you're eating, and and you have to make sure you're making healthy choices. That's why we have a dietitian as part of our team. Fad diets are probably not the way to go. Oh, definitely. Changing your lifestyle in a way that you're eating heart-healthy foods, you know, five to seven fruits and vegetables a day. Um, at, you're making sure that you're not uh, eating too many fried foods. You can mm-hmm. turn... Uh, wonderful healthy fish into something that's a lot less healthy for you by eating fried foods. Right, then frying it, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and y- you have to pay attention to the amount of fats you're getting in your diet and try and reduce the amount of fats that you take in. It's really a balancing act. You know, I, I, I talk to people all the time, um, it, it, and especially, especially over the last several years, working with a lot of people in the Spirit of Women events, and we talk have a lot of dietitians that come in, and there are so many fads out there, and you know, between the protein shakes and the bars, and nobody really looks at the calorie balance or what you're really taking in and how your body's using it. We all eat on the run. Yeah, you you said the right word, the calorie balance. And so we need to focus on how many calories we're burning and how many calories we take in. And, you know, um, uh, Victoria has some great tricks that she um, teaches when we go out into the community. And, you know, sometimes it's uh, a juice. You may have juices or sodas that are very high in sugar, mm. and they really add up quickly. So, you know, I urge people to just count what you're taking in in a day and then pay attention to how much you're burning. And if you ever get on a treadmill, it's hard to burn off, you know, a, a hamburger's worth of calories. <laughs> they it's have to pay definitely, attention. <laughs> it's definitely hard. And, you know, and I'm sure you work with patients, too, that, you know, when we look at trying to, that you say calories in and calories out, sometimes it's hard for people to get the calories out based on maybe physical limitations. So then they have to really be creative. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, and again, that's why we have an exercise physiologist on right. our team. You know, if it's hard to walk 
trust me, there are other things you can do to keep your heart healthy. And every time we do things that increase our heart rate, even if it's just lifting weights with our arms um, and doing it repetitively, after about 10 minutes, you start to get the cardiovascular benefit. That's the increased blood flow that opens all our arteries, delivering more blood flow to our body, keeping those arteries nice and flexible, less likely to have plaque deposit in the arteries, and more likely to have lower blood pressures because the arteries aren't stiff. You know, so we were talking about knowing your numbers. So, you know, we talked about a a body mass index, and you're talking about the weight circumference and the height and weight ratio. And then you did mention about blood pressure. And you said, you know, if someone is over 140, over 90, you know, that's someone we really, you know, have a radar. But they have started to play with those numbers in in the media. And we've seen so many changes in those numbers. Can you explain what is healthy, what is not healthy, and why have they lowered those numbers a bit? Um, They've lowered them because uh, we're not being aggressive enough Uh. in reducing a heart attack and stroke by getting blood pressure under control. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Americans out there with elevated blood pressure. And I know in my own experience, um, a lot of people want to explain away a high blood pressure as, you know, traffic on their way into the appointment and things like that. But when we put on a 24-hour monitor on patients, we find that blood pressure is actually high many times during the course of the day, not just the time you came in for your visit. Mm. Now, there is this entity called white coat hypertension, and it it may actually increase uh, your risk for heart attack and stroke. So even people who only have high blood pressure, when you come see the doctor, may be at higher risk. And so everything we can do to get people to get their blood pressure in the right range is helpful. So if your blood pressure, when we check, is not 120 over 80, and how we check matters. So you have to be sitting for five minutes relaxed in a quiet place with the blood pressure cuff on your upper arm, your feet flat on the floor, and then have your blood pressure checked. Feet and flat on the, the floor. Well, I'm gonna yes. st- Why is that? Because if your feet are dangling, the lower number is higher. That diastolic number is higher. And we don't want the number to be falsely higher and treat you with a medicine you don't need. No, I so, never knew that. I'm a nurse. I never knew. So, yeah, I'm gonna, when I go for my checkup, I'm sitting in the chair. I'm not going to, because I'm short, so I always dangle. <laughs> I know. Don't dangle. Now, see, that's the difference in height coming right back that's again, Robin. It. I never get to dangle. <laughs> this is great. This is a great takeaway for my audience. It's so true. I never realized that. Yeah. And so I think the only number people should pay attention to is this 120 over 80. And remember, it's not just one point in time. So if you're elevated, if your blood pressure is elevated and your doctor gives you some medicine because maybe diet and exercise and, you know, reducing your caffeine didn't help and reducing alcohol can also reduce blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And so if those things didn't work, remember that after you start that pill, you need to keep checking your blood pressure and you need to call your doctor and be a squeaky wheel if those numbers are still elevated. And, And one of the very important things for patients to know is if your doctor gives you a medicine for high blood pressure, you need to take it. And you need to take it every day if it's to work. And, And you know what Claire always tells all our patients is exercise is the best medicine and you have to take it every day just like all these other medicines you take right. you need to take them every day do, do, do you find if people increase their amount of exercise they do reduce their blood pressure significantly? absolutely yeah. absolutely so um 
if you exercise regularly, aerobically, and for mm-hmm. longer amounts of time, uh, after you finish exercise, your blood pressure goes lower, and it stays lower for longer and longer periods of time after you become more regularly aerobically active. And so if you're walking, I remind people, you know, we say the aerobic activity is anything that increases your heart rate for 30 minutes at a minimum, if we can get there, every single day. If you increase that to 45 minutes, you're going to get even more benefit. Wow. I, you know, it's, it's really tough. And you, as you well know, because you you are have work as many hours, if not more than myself, to fit that in. Yeah. So anything over ten minutes gives you benefit. Okay, I'll but you take have to go it. continuously <laughs> for ten minutes. And I don't think anyone listening, or you, or I, can't find ten minutes every day. No. Well, I have more than ten minutes with my golden retriever many times a day. So I'm hoping <laughs> that walking an eighty-pound golden briskly through many neighborhoods is helps. Yeah. No. Dog owners live longer than cat owners. Look at that. Probably because we are more physically active if we have a dog. <laughs> that <laughs> is definitely physical true. activity is the key. <laughs> now, again, talking about numbers, before we take a break, I want to talk a bit about cholesterol yes. and the role of cholesterol and what you look for as a cardiologist with your, with your patients and what we do with um, medications and when it's appropriate and when maybe we don't need it. Absolutely. So I'm going to tell you the numbers and what they should be ideally. So when you get, it's not just one number when you get your right. your lipid profile, you get a lot of different numbers. So your total cholesterol should be less than 200. Your LDL cholesterol, that's the lousy cholesterol that you want <laughs> low, should be less than 100. Your HDL cholesterol, which is the happy cholesterol that you want high, should be over 40 for men, over 50 for women. Your triglycerides should be less than 150. And so that's kind of the ideal numbers. And how you get them to that goal is not just an automatic, if one number is high, that you'd be given a medicine. Instead, um, our guidelines from the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, have provided an app as well as an online Hmm. risk calculator. And anyone can get it. It's available free on the app stores. You can go (laughs) to the website. There's an app for everything. Well, and it has... um, very specific information for clinicians, but also has the information filtered down and made legible and understandable for patients. Because what we've learned that's very important about this whole issue of um, cholesterols is that there needs to be uh, an informed discussion between a clinician and a patient to make good decisions about what to do. So you should get your app. If you've got your cholesterol numbers and you know your blood pressure number, you'll need a couple of other things um, to do it. And so you fill in your numbers, and it tells you what your risk is. And if your risk of having a heart attack in the next 10 years is greater than 7.5%, then you probably need to be on a statin medicine because we know that these statin medications reduce risk of heart attack and stroke. And that discussion about whether or not you take that medicine and for you what are the risks and the benefits really needs to happen between you and the clinician at that point. If your risk is lower than that, Again, regardless of what your exact cholesterol numbers are, then maybe you don't need to be on a medicine, but there are some people who still fall in a high-risk group that's not captured by that risk calculator. So you may have a very strong family history, and your number came out 
like your risk is 5% or 2%, but in fact your risk is high. There are some other tests we can do that aren't covered in that calculator to figure out if you're still someone who needs to be on a cholesterol-lowering medicine because those cholesterol-lowering medicines work. Wow. What is the name of the app? It's called the ASCVD Risk Calculator or Risk Estimator. ASCVD. Yep, risk. it's for atherosclerotic mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease. So I think if you just type Excellent. ASCVD in, you'll It'll pull find it. it up. That's yep. Johnny's writing it down here. My, our production, <laughs> Johnny. Johnny's all over this. Johnny, we'll we'll make sure that you get this on your phone. <laughs> but I uh, think it's really confusing. I mean, you know, people are so afraid nowadays to take medications, and you know, we're talking about blood pressure medication, and then you know, cholesterol medication, and then you know, it's 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 scary to be on these medications. But these medications save your life. Yeah, I think it's scarier to not be here. Right, absolutely. To not have any, to not have that level of protection because if your body, especially for people with a strong family history whose body naturally just produces this high cholesterol level. Yes. And that that is a hereditary thing in a lot of cases. If you can't get it down naturally, there's still those patients out there that I, I can tell might tell you my mother-in-law, God bless her, is one of them. She's had eight children. She's as thin as can be. She's in her 80s, she's amazing, but this poor woman has high cholesterol. Yeah, and so some, you know, what's scary is that some people with normal cholesterol are still at very high risk because mm-hmm. even though their cholesterol numbers are not high in circulating in the blood, they have the propensity to have those cholesterol, those lipids deposit in their arteries. And so even with relatively normal cholesterol numbers, if your risk is high, then you probably need to be on a cholesterol-lowering medicine because we know that even though your numbers are good now, for you, they may be too high. You may be depositing them in your arteries and be at higher risk for heart attack and stroke. And we can reduce that risk with a cholesterol-lowering medicine. It's amazing what we can do out there with what we have in science. And again, the reasons that it has to be a discussion between you and your clinician is that, you know, the reason that people don't like these medicines is they have some side effects. And mm-hmm. some of the side effects are, are muscle aches, um, you know, in making it so that you're not tolerant of the right. cholesterol-lowering medicine or increases in liver enzymes. Um, and, and we can check for things and um, we can look for these things with blood tests and follow up with you. And that's, that's why you go see your doctor and you get these things taken care of. And it's so important to have that continuity of care with your physicians and the team so that everybody knows what your starting point was and where you go to. Yep. We do. We have a couple of calls, Johnny. Yeah. So we are going to take a couple of calls. Let's go. Okay, try it Hi. Welcome to the program. You have a question? Hi, yes. I was just um, diagnosed about a month ago with AFib. I'm only 63, and um, they put me on three different medications. And I'm just wondering, even with the medications, at least once a week, my my heart starts racing. And I don't, you know, they tell me to go to the hospital, the ER right away, and I can't keep going in and out of the ER. I'm just wondering, what else could I do? So that's a good question. A lot of what we've been talking about so far, I I think of it, I was an engineer before I became a doctor, like the plumbing system for the heart. And what you're talking about, this atrial fibrillation that I think, Robin, you talked about last time, is kind of the electrical system of the heart. So what happens sometimes is uh, instead of the normal sinus rhythm, the atria 
lots of different cells decide that they're going to start the rhythm. And these irregular, very fast heart rhythms start called atrial fibrillation. And they put the, put the heart and you at risk for a couple of uh, things. One of them is not feeling so good. If the atrial fibrillation is going very, very fast, um, it certainly can uh, make you feel pretty tired and can cause even more serious problems if it's left very high heart rates for a long time. And the other is that if you're in that AFib and you're at um, high enough risk for clots to form, if a clot were to form inside the heart, it has the risk of traveling outside the heart where it can lodge in the lungs or lodge in your arms or your legs or even in your brain, causing a stroke, which is a more worrisome complication. And so some of the medicines we give are to keep the blood thin, and some of the medicines we give are to keep the heart rate low so you feel good. And those are uh, probably two of the three medicines you've been put on. And then sometimes when you're not feeling well with this atrial fibrillation, we give medicines to uh, try to keep you out of, we call it rhythm control medicines, try to keep you out of the atrial fibrillation. And it doesn't always work 100%. Uh, In some patients, they go years and years and years without having any more of these little episodes of heart racing or or episodes of the atrial fibrillation. And sometimes people just notice a significant decrease in the number of episodes they have with the atrial fibrillation. And um, I'm not sure um, how far you've gotten into this process, but I think you and your doctor should work on a a perfect arrangement for those medicines so you can feel good all the time and not be at risk for complications. Yeah. Is it dangerous for me to fly? Again, I would check with your doctor in case there's something else I don't know about, but most people with atrial fibrillation can fly just fine. AFib alone doesn't uh, put you at high risk for flying or having a complication in flight. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Good luck. Thank you for calling. We have one more caller, Doc. We'll take. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the program. How can we help you? Yes, how are you? I'm the St. Mary's Hospital open heart surgery patient, and uh, I just took my blood pressure with both feet on the ground. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and my blood pressure is 93, 67, 75, and I haven't taken my toporol now yet tonight, and I take 20 milligrams. I was taking 100 milligrams, but because of proper diet and Watching myself, uh, seven years ago I had my operation, so my blood pressure is 93, 67, and, 70, and 75, that lower Congratulations. number. Congratulations. You have dream numbers. Pardon me, that lower number sometimes fluctuates a lot. You know the bottom number there? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, so I I always remind people everyone's different. Mm-hmm. And so uh we go we go frequently to numbers lower than that, especially if you're feeling good. And we want lower numbers in general. And so as long as you feel good, those are perfectly fine numbers. They sound great to me. Well, uh, I, all this is thanks to St. Mary's Hospital <laughs> and all the nurses and the doctors that kept me Amen. alive. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, I still got my feet on the ground while I'm talking. <laughs> See you later, ladies. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for Take calling. Care.
Thank you, Doc, for answering questions. You know, it's there's a lot of um, people out there with AFib, so and it's a scary thing. And the more yeah. and more, you know, it's not something. When I was early on in my nursing career, it definitely wasn't something you heard a lot about. But I think there's just more awareness now. It's, I think you're right. I you think know, you're right. There's more, it's more talked about, and I think there's more education on it, and people are becoming more aware, which is a really good thing because if you find out you have AFib, you can't prevent a serious complication. Absolutely. You know, I think that um, in the old days, when, when you and I were younger, mm-hmm. we, we had patients come in with stroke, and that yeah. was the first time we found out they were in AFib. Yeah. Now, hopefully, we catch it long before those things happen, and we give people the right medicines to prevent them. And, and people can live with AFib with the right medication and keep them under, like you said to the earlier caller, a good balance for that person. And I think it's so important to tell your doctor what you're feeling and try to get that, help, that balance that's right for you. Right. A question I had um, just now, just thinking about that we didn't talk about was, you know, we're talking about women and heart disease. When women go through menopause, there's so many different fluctuations and and things that happen with their bodies. But there's also an increased risk for for heart disease. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I told you some of the symptoms of heart disease. And one of the first thing anyone who's gone through menopause knows is that sometimes when you hit menopause, you start having symptoms of losing estrogen, like hot flashes and night sweats, and they can feel an awful lot like a heart attack. And sometimes people can even get pressure in their chest. And so we know that before menopause, women have a lower incidence of heart disease cardiovascular disease. And when they reach menopause, their risk gets closer to the same as men. And so we think that that might have been uh, related in some way to hormones, and that hormones might have been protective. And we had done a lot of studies, observational studies, looking back in time, not um, giving some women uh, hormones and some women not, and seeing how they do. Instead, just observing, seeing if women who are on hormones are healthier and doing better than women who are not on hormones. And initially, those studies looked like the women who were on hormones were doing better than the women who were not on hormones. So it led us initially to believe that maybe we could replace the hormones and reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke. And and we believed that, so we tried some randomized clinical trials to try and sort out whether or not um, giving someone hormones might reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease. And this was all going on a long time ago, during the 1990s and up to the 2000s. And those trials were very confusing because we weren't able to reduce the number of heart attacks women were having by replacing hormones after menopause. Mm -hmm. And what's happened since then is uh, the recommendations are very clear that if a woman reaches menopause, her risk may be higher for cardiovascular events but she shouldn't be taking hormone therapy to reduce her risk of cardiovascular events. Um, if a woman is, uh, again, after a, a discussion with your healthcare provider about your individual risk with these hormones, if, if a woman is at low enough risk for problems from these medications, they would relieve symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats, and they even decrease risk of hip fractures, which is another right. thing that happens postmenopausally. Um, and they're appropriate for short-term use to uh, improve the menopause symptoms. 
but they're not really something that we want women taking to reduce risk of heart attack and stroke or any other long-term event or, or, or illness because it doesn't seem that they're beneficial. Um, there's risks to taking hormones, too, that include blood clots that could go to your brain, causing a stroke, and some increased risk in some cancers. But if someone is suffering from symptoms of menopause and they're very severe, even if she has a history of cardiovascular disease, she may be someone who's a candidate for those medicines and they work very, very well. So we tell women, especially when we're out in the community talking to a lot of different women, even though we know your risk for heart attack goes up after you reach menopause, we also know that if your cholesterols are high and we reduce them, then we're going to reduce your risk. If your blood pressure is high and you're a postmenopausal woman, woman, and we reduce your blood pressure, we reduce your risk. So all those other things we do, if you're smoking and you're postmenopausal, if you stop smoking, your risk goes down. So the other things that we know work are still very, very effective in postmenopausal women. That, you know, that's such huge information because there was a period of time where those were given to prevent certain things to Mm -hmm. prevent heart disease and Mm -hmm. and many other things we do know that you know with later studies we're just finding out more and more yeah you know you know we just had the caller about atrial fibrillation and you know that's complicated too because we try to keep the blood thin for that if you're a postmenopausal woman who wants to be on hormone therapy (laughs) and you get both diseases that's it really needs to be a discussion with your doctor because uh, for the AFib, you want to keep your blood thin, and if you're taking hormones, it might increase your risk. It of might blood inc- increase the ability, absolutely, <laughs> increase increase clotting. And in in today's society, so many young women have been on birth control pills for such a long period of time, and a lot of women still smoke. And those two combinations of birth control and smoking really increase your risk. And younger women use smoking as a, a way to lose weight or stay thin. And we're, those are two really tough combinations, but it's so true. Yeah, yeah. I hope no women, no woman, no man, nobody uses smoking to reduce your weight down. I know, terrible, but that's the young, the young generation. That's, you know, it's definitely been something that's out there. I think there's more awareness out there. There's definitely more education. But, you know, as I see younger and younger women smoking, it's incredible to me. Yeah, you mentioned birth control pills. Mm. They're kind of in a different class than the hormone replacement therapy that we're giving uh, women who are uh, menopausal. Right. And and we don't think that oral contraceptive pills actually increase risk of cardiovascular events. Okay. They do. They do increase. They don't increase the stroke. They could make. They do increase the risk of clots, right, and they clotting. could increase the risk of, so the clots could travel to the brain, which right. would cause a stroke. They could also travel to the lung, which would right. cause something called a pulmonary embolus. Right. And so they do increase risk of clotting. Right. So thank you. Thank you for that clarification. But it's important information to get out there as, as we have moms listening, too, for their daughters. Yep. You know, yep. definitely. So I wanted to talk a little bit. We have um, a few minutes left. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the testing that you do when someone comes in um, and you're suspecting that they're having an issue and they may be having symptoms of heart disease. What are some of the first steps that you take when you go through your interview process and you feel that this woman or, or man really need to be tested? What are some of the first steps you take? 
So if I see someone who has symptoms that I think might be coming from the heart, from blocked arteries, um, I, I will always do a good history, good physical exam, and an electrocardiogram. Now, what type of tests we do after that are different based on uh, how the symptoms are and how that EKG turned out. If someone is having a heart attack, and I know that they're having a heart attack, we usually take them to the cardiac catheterization laboratory, and then we try to open up the artery with a cardiac catheter balloon and then sometimes a stent. And so um, we want to do that quickly, and we want people to come in when they're having symptoms, um, and we want to take care of the heart attack right away. Now, if someone's having chest pain that comes on when they're exerting themselves every now and then, a stress test is a very reasonable way to decide whether or not that symptom is from the heart. And a stress test, a woman will walk on a treadmill and we'll just watch her ECG, which is just stickers put on the outside of your chest, and we'll watch while she walks and we'll be able to tell if, if she has any trouble from her heart causing her symptom, her chest discomfort usually. Sometimes we need to do more tests than that. Uh, if her electrocardiogram is not normal, if it has some changes at baseline, which some people, both men and women, can have a little more often than women in, than men, we see these little subtle changes in the EKG that are not specific for heart disease, but make it harder for us to read their EKG on a treadmill test. We'll have to do a stress echo where we use ultrasound to look at the heart muscle before and after exercise, or a nuclear stress test, which allows us to look at the blood flow to the heart muscle. And more recently, we've learned that we can actually do a CT scan. More recent trials have looked at this as a, a very viable option to figure out whether someone's symptoms are from their heart or not. And on the CT scan, we can see both how much calcium there is in the heart arteries as well as whether or not there's blockages in the heart arteries. Hmm. And all of these things are reasonable, but they're the best test for different people. And so um, as a healthcare provider, I'll, I'll pick the right test for the right person. For instance, if someone has a left bundle branch block on their EKG, I'm going to want a nuclear stress test. It's the best test for that. And then if someone is very young, a CT scan may be a more appropriate test than if someone was 68 or 70. Um, as you get older, calcium is more often seen in the arteries, and it makes it harder for us to see blockages on a CAT scan. So we wouldn't be doing that test as often in an older patient to look for blockages as we would a stress test. And so there's lots of little nuances that help us pick the right test. But I always remind patients who come to me, if you're not having symptoms, all of these tests have false positive rates that are mm -hmm. important, which means you could do the test and I could say, it looks like you might have trouble with your heart, but if you're not having symptoms or you don't have any reason for me to want to do the test, a sign that maybe your heart isn't doing as well as it should be doing by your exam or by some other test we did, then your risk of false positives is so high that it's really unacceptably high. So we don't like to do stress tests on patients who are having no symptoms on a regular basis. The, you mentioned, you know, the calcium and mm -hmm. the CT scans. There's been a lot out there on the calcium scoring. Is mm -hmm. that what you're referring to? Yes. 
So the calcium scoring, so that that's definitely something if you're suspecting something in a younger patient that has a, would you do that with someone with a high risk, a high family history? Yeah, so there's a number of different ways we're using it. And okay. so um, if, I'm, if I'm seeing someone who's not having symptoms and maybe her risk on that ASCVD risk calculator is right. low, but I still think she's at high risk. If I do a coronary calcium score, mm-hmm. I can also go online for other risk calculators that tell me what to do with that. And I can predict what her risk for cardiovascular events is. Mm-hmm. And it may, um, it may suggest a higher incidence than I predicted by that risk calculator. So the calcium score alone can tell us that. Um, what I was referring to in a patient who's having symptoms at the time is we want to see if there's any blockages Absolutely. in those arteries. Right. And if the calcium score on that initial image is too high, we won't be able to tell. Right. If there's blo- little detailed blockages, the calcium makes it harder for us to see in the artery because okay. the CAT scans can't see so well right. through the right. calcium. But it's definitely a newer test. It's something that's been out a while, but it's definitely something that's come out in recent, you know, recent um, news articles. And I know a lot of people ask about it. Yeah. And if someone's had sort of equivocal tests and we don't know what to do with them, the additional information we get from these calcium scores and from CAT scans can help us to know what to do with a patient in terms of, you know, preventing a heart attack. Right. A question I have for you in regards to um, the ultrasound. You mentioned the echocardiography. We've come Mm -hmm. so far in imaging of the heart, Mm -hmm. and you are definitely one of those pioneers behind that. And I know that it's really an important part of what you do. Maybe we talk a little bit about that and that imaging. So uh, I was talking about using it with a stress test, but we do it a lot of times, even without the stress test. Um, as a, with a simple ultrasound of the heart, we can tell how the heart function is. We can see if the heart's had a heart attack in the past. And we can tell a lot about the valves of the heart and whether or not they're working well. Those are kind of the doors that are inside the heart between mm-hmm. chambers, keeping blood flow going in one direction. And those uh, valves of the heart can be stenosed, not opening well, or they can be regurgitant, letting blood flow backwards into the previous chamber. We call it regurgitation or leak of the valve. It's not leaking outside the heart. It's leaking into the previous chamber. Right. And those things can put a lot of stress on the heart, and uh, sometimes we have to take care of those things. And in patients where it's difficult to understand uh, if their symptoms are related to the heart, um, just at rest, sometimes we even do stress tests to look at the valves of the heart to sort out whether or not the valve problem they're having is serious enough that something needs to be done about that valve, including putting in a new valve with a valve replacement surgery, with open heart surgery, or even these transcatheter approaches to valve repair and replacement. It's amazing what you can see. And I know the the, the tests, that the ultrasounds, the echocardiographies that are done, they definitely take a long time, but they're very meticulous about the imaging that they're doing. And they're very well trained, the technologists. It's true. And, and we can tell a lot more about the heart than we ever could in the past. We can tell how well the heart relaxes. We do tests called strain imaging, and we can predict uh, whether or not a chemotherapeutic agent is going to hurt the heart before even the heart muscle is hurt by that 
chemo drug. So many times patients who are receiving cancer treatment will come for regular echocardiograms to make sure that the particular cancer treatment drugs they're on aren't hurting their heart. Well, we have talked about a whole realm of things, and I can't thank you enough for for sharing with us your expertise and giving us more information about the the Hoffman Heart and Vascular Institute at St. Francis. It's it's amazing to know that we have this and we have the ability to educate women in our community. And, you know, we do have that. I know we have it out in the Springfield area and we have it here in the greater Waterbury area. And I know these heart programs for women, it's just about getting to them early on and educating them so they recognize when they need to have treatment. And they, and they start a more proactive approach for their health. Yeah, to reduce their risk. We're going to get the numbers in Connecticut lower than any place else, Robin, you and I. Absolutely. And with the re- the new Trinity Health of New England regional approach, I think that we will absolutely be able to accomplish that. I agree with you. So, Dr. Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to know a little bit more about the Hoffman Heart and Vascular Institute, please go on St. Francis, stfranciscare.org, and you can look right on there and click on the Hoffman Heart and Vascular Institute. And you can also go on the physician directory and look up Dr. Anita Kelsey. So, doctor, thank you so much for taking time to join us tonight. And I'm sure you and I will be seeing each other soon. We have a lot of work to do. I look forward to it, Robin. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Have a great night. Bye-bye. I want to thank everyone um, tonight for joining us. I know that was a lot of information in the hour span that we did. We really wanted to focus on heart disease in women and definitely, you know, educate everyone out there that there are so many resources in Connecticut and we are very proud at St. Mary's Hospital to be part of the Trinity Health of New England regional team and having so many resources that are part of our region is really beneficial to everyone in all of our communities. So our next program that we have for Spirit of Women is coming up and I think I mentioned this before uh, next Thursday evening February 22nd at the Wyndham Hotel in Southbury and it is about orthopedics. We are going to have with us Dr. Eric Carlson, Dr. Michelle Mariani, talking about um, getting you back on the move, keeping you moving. And I think it's really important for women out there to know about their um, osteoporosis risk factor. So we're going to have a lot of information on that. If you want to know more about it, certainly click on Spirit of Women on St. Mary's Hospital's website and click on and you can see that program. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. I will be back in a couple of weeks with another program on heart health. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital Exceptional Care. Every patient, every day, have a great weekend. Take care. Radio 